What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, here come some big retail earnings. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where we're looking ahead to the next CPI print for the UK amid a gloomy economic forecast from a leading think tank. I'm Doug Krisner. We'll look at the most rapidly growing EV market in the world. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where all eyes are on Georgia, ahead of a potential fourth indictment for former President Trump. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Well, good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with a big week ahead for retail earnings with a look at what that tells us about the U.S. consumer and maybe what to expect in the months ahead. Now, this week, we hear from three giants, Home Depot on Tuesday, Target on Wednesday, and the biggest of them all, Walmart on Thursday. There are other familiar names, TJX, Ross Stores, Teen Retailer, Buckle, but we're going to focus on the biggies. Now, for what we can expect to see, we're joined by Bloomberg News retail reporter Brendan Case. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Well, let's start and get right into it. Home Depot HD cut its financial forecast in May as shoppers finally, post-pandemic, kind of tapped the brakes on spending on their homes and yards. What do we expect to see from Home Depot? Yeah, we're going to be looking closely for any clues on how the home improvement market is is doing. Um, that had been you know, such a strong area of consumer spending during the pandemic and even the, you know, the, the, the few quarters coming out of the pandemic. It's finally slowed down in the first quarter. Um, there were also some some sort of temporary issues like weather, but definitely you were starting to see some softness in that in that category. Um, and of course, the, the 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 whole outlook for housing is is wrapped up in interest rates. There's a lot of different signals coming out of the sector. Uh, what home what Home Depot is going to tell us is uh, above all how uh, how much people are spending on home improvement projects, uh, both in terms of do it yourself uh, projects and also contractors, which is an area where Home Depot is 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 really strong. Yeah, and it's really a proxy for, in a way, for the entire housing market, because like you said, the home improvement, but also all that building going on, the contractors. And we have seen, despite the ups and downs in the housing market, home construction consistently strong. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Home Depot likes to say that it can it can prosper whatever the environment is. If there's not a whole lot of new construction, there's going to be a lot more renovations and, and, and they went either way. That argument uh, weakened a little bit in, in the first quarter, especially as the home improvement 
projects, you know, the remodelings kind of, you know, there were signs that it was that it was slowing down, especially as reflected in, in Home Depot's business. Uh, the new construction is certainly something that's that's going to help them, though. Um, and, and, and we should get a little more information from them about how they see that mix kind of evolving throughout the year and what their expectations are for for the remodels and also for the new homes. Now, uh, I do have a question about Lowe's. For a long time, number two to Home Depot. Home Depot, obviously the leader in the do-it-yourself market, but they've been making some pretty pretty big gains. They don't report to the following week, but are we seeing Lowe's kind of evening the playing field with Home Depot? Yeah, and this adds a, a company-specific issue for Home Depot's earnings next week. Certainly, they're going to reflect a lot of what's going on in a macro sense, but just from a company, from a competitive standpoint, uh, you know, they've been such a leader for, for so long, but one of the general themes in that part of the retail market is that Lowe's really has been been catching up. Uh, you know, it followed Home Depot by launching same-day delivery last month. It's trying really hard to get more professional contractors on board, which would help Lowe's make inroads in what's been a real stronghold for, for Home Depot. There's a lot of signs that it's gaining traction. And, and, you know, that's a real sort of direct head-to-head rivalry. And so just as we'll be looking for macro clues in Home Depot, we also want to know, you know, if there's any kind of signals in there about any ground they might be losing to, uh, to their chief rival. Next, there's Target. It's likely to post its biggest sales drop in more than six years. A lot of Americans starting to pull back on discretionary spending, things like toys, apparel, electronics. That shift began abruptly last year, still weighing heavily on Target. Yes, this could be a real milestone quarter for for Target in a lot of different ways, not necessarily negatively. But, you know, there is this expectation on Wall Street that sales are going to decline in the neighborhood of about three or four percent, there are some indications that the drop could be could be even worse. People are going to be watching that number really closely. And the you know, the, the, the big picture here is that Target was one of the big winners in the pandemic. A lot of demand, a lot of people buying stuff from Target. They did a great job of, of, of sort of shifting to, to e-commerce as well as stores during the, the pandemic. And they did really well. That really seems to be running out. And problem number one is exactly what you said. It's the pullback in consumer spending from discretionary goods, electronics, toys, apparel, home goods, all the type of products that that Target is typically so good at merchandising with their whole sort of cheap, chic approach to to, to their their product lines. Uh, That's just been a real tough part of the market for more than a year now. People uh, bought so much during the pandemic that there's less demand than there was, uh, you know, just because they don't need as much new stuff, number one. And number two, with inflation having been so high last year and into the into the beginning of this year, a lot of consumers had to just focus on, you know, buying the, the essentials, the, the, the groceries. That's a business that Target, you know, does have in some significance, but not to the extent that Walmart has or obviously grocery chains have. Um, and then, of course, the third pressure on their sales is is the shift in spending towards services. And they're also coming off of calls for a boycott. This is related to their LGBTQ themed merchandise collection for Pride Month. And that, that may have really hurt things. Yes. And this is something that we will learn a lot more about 
next week in, in detail. The company really hasn't commented on exactly what the effect on sales was. But as you'll recall, back in May, uh, towards the end of May, they got caught up in a big kind of culture war controversy where, you know, they've always had a, a, a pretty a pretty big, a pretty significant um, collection of merchandise for Pride Month in June. Uh, this year, there were some some criticisms on social media, uh, particularly around some of their, their products. There was a, a bathing suit that, that, that caused a lot of controversy. Um, and there was some misinformation. There were, there, there were some, some criticisms of the bathing suit supposedly being designed for kids, which was not accurate. It was a, it was an adult product, uh, but nonetheless, it turned into sort of a public relations fiasco for, for Target and a, and, and a real hit to its brand among some shoppers. There were calls uh, in certain parts of social media and online, uh, you know, to do a boycott, as you said. Yeah. We do not know exactly what kind of hit that delivered. Was it big? Was it small? Was it noticeable? Was it, you know, we just don't know. And we should learn a lot more next next week, but that, you know, clearly had some effect. And so that'll be another headwind for them. Now, Walmart, if there's any chain that's going to benefit from high inflation and a pullback in consumer spending, it's going to be Walmart. What do we see happening there? So Walmart's really been hitting the cover off the ball for about a year now. Um, They had a huge problem last year, as did Target, in terms of getting uh, overstocked on inventories. They that both companies guessed wrong and really badly wrong on how much of the discretionary product they were going to need. And so, you know, for both of them, that led to a lot of markdowns last year and a big hit to profits. But for Walmart, at the same time, with inflation going up, a lot of people were thinking to themselves, well where do I get the best prices? You know, prices are going up, but where can I find the best prices on food, on other basic goods? And a lot of them chose Walmart. Walmart has talked a lot about uh, upper income households, households with incomes over $100,000, accounting for, you know, half to three quarters of the gains in their comparable store sales. And so they've been getting a lot of trade down activity um, even as they see some weakness in, in their core customer and in, in kind of the middle income or, or, or lower income uh, of, 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 of consumers. Um, but if you, if you net it all out, what they've gotten is a big uptick in sales. That's expected to continue, but the question is going to be how much. Uh, with inflation coming down, you know, one challenge for Walmart is going to be whether they can hold on to some of the more affluent shoppers that they've gotten at the same time, you know, with obviously we're not in a recession, the job market is still strong, but there's a lot of pressure on lower income uh, consumers right now. And for, for Walmart, you know, it's going to be sort of a question mark how, how well they can hold up. Well, a lot to look forward to. Brendan Case, Bloomberg retail reporter, thank you so much for joining us. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a leading UK think tank says Britain must confront reality rather than reject it when it comes to its economic plight. We'll explain. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. 
Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, former President Trump could be in the headlines again this coming week. But first, a leading UK think tank says Britain must confront reality rather than reject it when it comes to its economic plight. This ahead of the latest UK inflation data coming in the next few days, expected to show price increases continuing to plague the UK. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchors Caroline Hepker and Stephen Carroll. Tom, we get the next set of consumer price inflation data in the coming few days. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, of course, has set himself the goal of halving inflation by the end of the year from a starting point at that time of 10.7%. There was a point earlier in the year where that looked really quite tricky, like a really tall order. Uh, the last inflation print has shown uh, price gains cooling. The Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey, who spoke to Bloomberg pretty recently, was warning Stephen. Uh, that the last mile in the inflation fight is uh, you know, looking very difficult. He was very committed to it, uh, but it looks like quite a long mile. Carlin, this is something we've heard over and over from the likes of Dan Hansen from Bloomberg Economics, who tells us that the easy bit is coming down the higher level of inflation. When that number starts to get closer to that 2% level, that's going to be the really difficult part, and that's the part where you enter into the risk of over-tightening by the Bank of England. Now, the, the latest forecast from Bloomberg Economics does see the UK CPI coming below 5% by the end of this year, but as you say, it's a very shaky path, and there are lots of quite gloomy opinions out there about the trajectory for the UK economy. Yeah, absolutely. So that uh, includes the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, a think tank here in London, which came out uh, in the last few days with a major bit of reporting around where they see inflation, economic growth, inequality. And on all of those fronts, it's pretty bad news. NISA sees the UK economy stagnating for years, says the UK is actually unlikely to return to pre-pandemic levels of activity before 2024. Yeah, and look, that's something that makes the UK economy an outlier in the G7 as well. The outlook for inflation as well is a very slow climb down. They're saying they're still seeing inflation at 2.3% 
in 2025. They've also pointed to rising inequality among the regions of the UK, falling wages in some places and a government whose hands are tied because of its continually spending more than it's bringing in. We've been speaking to the director of NISER, Jagjit Chadda, about this latest report. It's not a very pleasant picture. And I think and as an economy, uh, as a set of decision makers and policy makers, particularly with the election in front of us next year, I think we, it's time to come, it's, the time has come to confront reality uh, rather than reject it. So if we could think of the report as a, as a plain vanilla description of where we are and where we're likely to go, I think our ultimate hope is that could prompt better policy. So what we have in a, is an economy that um, went into COVID with a weak structural supply side, as well as having just affected Brexit, breaking relations with our nearest and richest trading neighbours. Um, the COVID crisis revealed all kinds of weaknesses in our health service uh, that still haven't been addressed, that seem to me to be intimately linked with labour supply in the economy. Subsequently, that labour supply has been hampered um, because people fearing ill health haven't returned to labour force, that's older people. But as well, um, we find ourselves short in many sectors uh, with, with vacancies still at elevated lef- levels. Um, the food and energy crisis created by the increase in, uh, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine led to a large increase in energy and food prices, which we don't produce largely on the margin. That meant that as an economy, we suffered a fall in income, what economists call a terms of trade shock. That was not the same, for example, for the United States, that is a net producer of energy and food. But for us, it meant that we were importing goods that had become more expensive. And for a large time, at an exchange rate that had depreciated. You remember sterling was in decline for much of 2022. This then has put upward pressure on inflation, um, as well as the constricted supply side. That's meant mm-hmm. the Bank of England had to respond very rapidly to that and raise interest rates. And when we add all this up, it leads to an economy that on average is not likely to grow very much at all. And I think that's something we, we all need to think about hard, accept and address. You are tearing strips off the government, as far as I can see in this report. You talk about facing reality. How much of this is the government's fault? Well, we've had a, a, an immense amount of political churn um, in the last three or four years. You don't need me to go through all the episodes. But uh, I would say the, the the height of that was the mini budget crisis of, of September 2022, which is certainly scarred in my memory, if not yours, that demonstrated that there were no quick fixes to the problems that we face in the economy. Nurturing the supply side, uh, whether it's in the public sector, the health sector, transport, um, or, or in the in the private sector by getting firms uh, to invest, to encourage them to invest both in physical and intangible capital, but also in their workers' skills, um, is, is something that will take a generation or so to achieve. No quick boost is going to work here. And I think we're kind of at the end of those short-run political plans, a dash for growth, or some announcement that will quickly lead to growth. It's not really the way the supply side of the economy works. And we really need our political classes and decision makers to accept that that the decisions that they now may make, ultimately they're going to help the supply side of the economy, ones that won't necessarily lead to benefits over the political cycle. And one of the problems we have is that we're focused always on the next election, which means we're looking for quick fixes, which we can see time and time again, episode after episode, political cycle after political cycle just haven't worked. To have five years without growth on average and 
alongside that widening disparity. If we look, for example, at where we think the, the on average workers in London will be by the end of next year, their real wages will be 7% above the pre-COVID peak. Whereas if I take one region at, at, at random, the West Midlands, they will be 5% below. Those widening disparities, when we take the average of that, is the reason we have such low growth in the economy. We need consistency of planning to help the other parts of the economy outside of London and the Southeast catch up, create productivity, high level, high income jobs that will, 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 will propel this economy onto a better path. And we've been stuck at this level for, for quite some time now. There are a couple of points that I think are really important, though, to pull out of your report. One, the idea that the UK is at nearly full um, employment, a very, very low unemployment, and that we still haven't managed to grow. And that also there isn't actually much fiscal leeway, i.e. the amount of money that the government is bringing in in order to achieve its goals, because we're not growing, is very, very little. And that crunch, I'm not sure people necessarily understand. Why is that so important you know, to understand that. I mean, that we would be a real outlier in the G7, you know, to have so little fiscal headroom. I think that's absolutely right. And that's the critical question that any government will have to face um, when it wins the election next year. We, we see unemployment rising a bit to something like just slightly over 5% in, in, a, in a year and a half or so. That's not high by historical standards at all. And what you would expect under the circumstances, if we were at full employment with people paying taxes on their income, that we would then be in, in fiscal balance or a small fiscal surplus. Sadly, of course, because in part because of these income inequalities that I've been talking about, even those high levels of employment don't generate sufficient taxes to lead to the balanced budget or the fiscal uh, surplus that we would require that would then give us funds to address the fundamental lack of public investment in the economy and also to help grow the skills base that we see around the country. That was Professor Jagjit Chadha, who is Director of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, speaking to us here on Bloomberg Radio as we get ready, of course, for the next UK inflation reading and what it means for the economy. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Stephen and Caroline. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, former President Trump in the headlights once again. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Another indictment could be coming for President Trump. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. That's right, Tom. The former president has already been indicted three times. First in the state of New York related to hush money payments to adult film actress Stormy Daniels, then in Florida, where he was hit with federal charges in the classified documents case, and most recently, another federal indictment brought in Washington over efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election and obstruct the transition of power. And now a fourth indictment could be coming. The district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, Fonnie Willis, is widely expected to bring charges related to efforts to overturn the election results in that state. President Trump was actually talking about that this past week in an interview on Newsmax. And I don't know what she's doing. I really don't know. All I know is she could have done it two and a half years ago if she was going to do something. And this is about a perfect phone call, a call where I'm questioning the election. I'm telling them that, in my opinion, the election was rigged. And they're saying that I was I did something incorrect. I didn't do anything wrong. I believe I won that election by many, many votes. Of course, he's referring to that phone call between himself and Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, in which he said, quote, I just want to find 11,780 votes. So let's get more on this potential indictment that is seemingly just around the corner. David Boriakos, Bloomberg legal reporter, and Wendy Benjaminson, Bloomberg Washington senior editor, are joining me now. So David, just to you first, what are we expecting this coming week in Fulton County? What charges could we be looking at here? Well, um, the prosecutors who work for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis have been investigating this case for two and a half years, and um, they are expected in the coming week to present evidence to a grand jury that could return an indictment against Trump and his allies. It could be this coming week or the week after that, Um, but they have spent a lot of time assembling evidence. There was an advisory grand jury convened last year that heard from 75 different witnesses. And so now they're presenting it to a different grand jury that can actually bring criminal charges. And what we're hearing is that um, Fonnie Willis could go big, as uh, many um, legal observers in Atlanta believe she will. And in so doing, she would probably bring charges under the state racketeering law or um, perhaps just under election fraud and conspiracy laws. And um, such an indictment 
could involve um, Trump and a number of his allies, as many as 12 different people uh, we have heard. And uh, there's a variety of different incidents that they're looking at. Yeah. And we've also heard from the sheriff in Fulton County, who's indicated that the former president would be treated just like anyone else, mugshot included. And David, that could make this case a little different than the, the others we have seen. Right. In the other cases in which he was criminally charged in federal court in uh, Washington and in Florida and in the state case in New York, he was not mugshotted. And I would just say that the sheriff said that that would be their plan unless the judge who receives the case tells them otherwise. Mm. So, Wendy, to bring you in here on kind of the political implications of all of this, this if the pattern follows, is likely just going to fire up the former president's base even more. He has said multiple times in the last week and change that he just needs one more indictment to cinch the 2024 race. Yeah. And like I said before, I don't think he's necessarily wrong on that, at least on the presidential nomination. He has, um, you know, raised more money every time he's indicted or raised money every time he's indicted. It does seem to be tapering off as they become sadly routine um, for him to do this. But it's, you know, there's, it seems like the indictments are emboldening him. But I think the more he talks about the case, the more that things happen not in his favor, either through pretrial rulings or later on convictions, if those happen, um, that may begin to chip away at everything but the diehard base, which is still only about a third of Republican primary voters. But he's still going to face the challenge, even if there are people who want to show up and vote for him in the primaries, that he's going to be trying to campaign uh, in all of these primary states that are critically important at the same time that he's also going to be dealing with court dates, with with trials. And Wendy, that's just calendar-wise very difficult. Calendar-wise, very difficult, although Trump is not a traditional candidate and that he'll stand next to a butter cow at the Iowa State Fair and all of that. Mm-hmm. He likes to do his rallies. He likes to fly in on his jet, you know, keep the jet in the background, do the rally and all of that. Um, but I, And so he may be able to, uh, you know, given his wealth and private jet and all that, be able to to maintain both schedules, although it's going to be nutty and completely unprecedented in American Hmm. history. But I think one of the larger issues for him and why his attorneys are talking so much in their defense about this was my First Amendment right to say all of this is because they know they will not be able to control him on the campaign trail. And if the Hmm. First Amendment is their defense, then he can call the judges nasty women. He can um, call the prosecutor deranged. He can um, talk about the case in a way that, you know, will will probably drive everyone with a law degree absolutely crazy. But um, he'll insist it's his First Amendment right until a judge, and David, you may predict this better than I can, slaps a gag order on him. It. Um, judges are loath to put a gag order on a defendant, but um, Trump uh, has a long career of pushing the boundaries, and he's trying to push the boundaries now in this case. I mean, as you said, uh, Wendy, his defenses so far that he's articulated um, are mostly First Amendment um, 
in the uh, Jack Smith case uh, relating to the election, uh, Jack Smith said this goes well beyond his free speech uh, rights. But um, judges uh, want to be careful not to um, put too tight a leash on Trump. And so that makes him much different than your average criminal defendant because he has such a big platform. And um, it's quite extraordinary and unprecedented for a defendant to be attacking the prosecutors, attacking uh, the judges, uh, attacking witnesses in the way that Trump is. And, um, you know, it presents a real challenge for everyone in the criminal justice system to know how to deal with that. Well, there's so many ways in which this is unprecedented, because also... I may be wrong on this, but this could be the first time that we could see, theoretically, we're still a long ways out from November of 2024, but the defendant in all of these cases, if found guilty, could be in a position to pardon himself in the future. But David, there is a distinction to be made there. That's not the case in Georgia with a state indictment, right? Right. He cannot pardon himself on state charges um, in either Georgia or New York. He could do it on the federal charges. Um, And so those two cases um, loom over him and, um, you know, present a real threat to him and his future in the way that the federal cases don't. Wendy, it seemed like you had a thought on that. Actually, David said exactly what I was thinking, (laughs) is that um, I think there will be an exploration if Mm. he becomes president again, and if there are convictions on his record, there will be a um, real study of the so-called absolute powers of pardoning of the president, because the Constitution says a president can grant a pardon, and that will take some judicial interpretation to decide mm-hmm. if you can grant a pardon to yourself. If there's any president who would do that, it is certainly Donald Trump. But on state, that's only on federal cases. On a state case, there's not a thing he can do about it. Well, and of course, all of this is assuming he may be found guilty of any of these allegations. And he still has to go through uh, the full judicial process that everyone else is entitled to here in this country. Thank you so much, Wendy Benjaminson, Bloomberg Washington Senior Editor, and David Voriakis, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. We appreciate it. And Tom, all our eyes turn to Georgia this coming week. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. China's EV market is fast growing. We just had Chinese electric car maker Li Auto reporting better than expected quarterly results earlier in the week. Let's get to Doug Krisner, co-host of Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. Tom, in the week ahead, we'll get earnings from the Chinese EV maker Xpeng. So we thought it would be a good time to check in on China's EV market, where the adoption of electric cars has been rapidly growing. You know, in 2022, more than half of all global EV sales occurred in China. For a closer look, I'm joined now by Bloomberg's Danny Lee, Bloomberg Asia transport reporter, joining us from our studios in Hong Kong. Danny, it's always a pleasure. And I want to begin with the big picture first. The domestic EV producers in China are clearly beating their foreign rivals. 
80% of all battery EVs in China are now coming from domestic producers. And among the top sellers, I think that only the top 10, I think only Tesla is in the ranks and German brands no longer play any role in the top 10. We can remember a time when foreign car makers were setting up joint ventures in China. Now they seem to be fading into the background. How, how did we get here? Yeah, it's a bit of a role reversal from the time, maybe like say like 20 years ago, where you saw a lot of the foreign automakers like your Volkswagens looking at China as a huge growth market potential, but they had fossil fuel engines. And then we've seen the Chinese automakers coming in with big bets, spurred on by uh, the central government to look at new technologies. This is why we've seen uh, huge state support in the likes of battery technology and the future, which is battery electric powered vehicles. And what China has done is managed to have a huge head start 10, 15 years ahead of anyone else in the market to develop initially not the best looking, not the best spec powered uh, electric vehicles. Now they have market leading, very stylish, very affordable at scale, very affordable EVs. And you look at where the competition is now in, in, in globally. They're, they're nowhere to be seen in terms, of, hmm. in terms of matching up to what China has to offer, apart from Tesla, who's made uh, a lot of the same kind of footprints of early bets into uh, battery electric technology and battery EVs. Wondering now about how sales are distributed. If you look at the premium category, we just heard from Lee Auto in the last week. The numbers seem to be very good and revenue guidance was also very strong. More of a mainstream brand and I'm thinking like a BYD or a Geely. Is there a real like split in the market here? Premium versus mainstream? I think there is a there is a consistent group of brands, in particular around the top 10, who in the last month in July reported sales that are near record highs or were record highs. So you saw your BYDs, you saw your uh, your Neos and your, your Liotos touching those highs. And then if you look at the wider market, even in the, just the wider auto space, the, the figures we saw in China showed uh, the, the market uh, contracting 2.2%. So year on year. So in a, in a way, the, the, there's a, sales are coalescing around major brands because they have either the best price or the best lineup. And it's helped that some of the, the EV makers of late, like your, like your Lee Autos and your Neos, have brought out new and more appealing models. And it's been quite a, a trial and error phase for them of late where they've brought out new models and they haven't always been well received or they haven't added in technology that, that everyone always likes. So with their most recent models, they have been well received. And what we have seen is higher numbers of sales uh, coming through. So which is why you see someone like the Auto who's gaining the confidence of raising its revenue guidance into the third quarter, also estimating higher sales in the third quarter, although as we've seen in the market reaction last week, Leoto's uh, stock reaction was pretty lackluster. Right. Good stuff. Danny Lee is Bloomberg's Asia transport reporter. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. 
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.